Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. Thus begins the last part of the book of Job, in which out of the storm God addresses Job. The last time we heard Job was in chapters 26 through 31, in which we had this long defense and justification of himself. He was in a rather defiant mood, insisting on interpreting his afflictions, all the things that had happened to him, as a sign of God's displeasure. And God could not possibly be displeased with him because, as Job argued, he was innocent, and therefore God's displeasure was unjust, arbitrary, and in fact might have been motivated by something like animosity toward Job. Job demanded that God acknowledge that he was innocent and had integrity, that God remove his shame and restore his reputation in the eyes of the community. In speaking, as God does in these next few chapters, God fulfills Job's deepest desire, the desire that God not remain silent. You may remember in chapter 3, back toward the beginning, when we have Job's sort of primal scream, when he's like, I wish I'd never been born. He says, what I feared has come upon me. What I have dreaded has happened to me. And what was it that he feared? It wasn't the loss of his children. It wasn't the loss of his possessions, the loss of his health. All of these happened to him. It was rather the loss of his God. That is, that God would be silent and not speak to him be so distant, so silent as to be absent from his life. Later on, in answering Eliphaz in chapter 23, Job said, if only I knew where to find him, if only I could go to his dwelling, but if I go to the east, he is not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. Well, Elihu has argued that God has been present all along. He just has been silent. He hasn't been speaking, at least in a way that Job expected him to. But now God does speak to Job, not because he has been forced to, not because Job has called him out and said, listen, I'm innocent. I want you to come out here and prove me wrong. God speaks not because he's been forced, but out of his concern for his servant, Job. You will notice in the weeks that we spend going through these chapters that God speaks But he ignores Job's complaints, doesn't deal with them at all. He does not respond to Job's claim of innocence. He does not correct Job for some wrongdoing. And that's what the three friends are sort of waiting for God to do. One author writes about this passage. God gives no answer to Job's questions. No apology for having been silent for so long. No hint about Satan's wager. No apparent acknowledgement of Job's struggle. Is it really enough? Another writes, within a very short time, Job must have wondered, as we as readers still wonder today, what the long-awaited reply could have to do with his plea. Not once are the troubles of Job, which are what the book that we are studying are about, as much as mentioned. In fact, as God speaks, he doesn't deal with what Job wanted and what we would want is an explanation. Instead, God addresses him as a teacher addresses a student and doesn't deal with a specific problem as such, but rather seeks to expand the understanding of the student 
about life in general and God. This is what he does with Job. God does this by looking at the created order and how he cares for the created order. And I think it is up to Job and to us to understand that if that is true about the created order, then it is certainly true about us. It is true about Job. There are two speeches or two discourses, if you wish, that God gives here. Uh, After each one, we have a brief speech or brief response from Job. Both of them can be categorized as hymns of praise. But as we go through, you might find that somewhat difficult. Uh, it, they do, in fact, speak about the wonder of what God has done in creation. I mean, it, it is sort of almost well, not encyclopedic, but I mean, it's just the breadth of, of creation and, and what a marvelous thing God has done. But you also have these rhetorical questions that border on, if not go completely over the line, of being just sarcastic. And God's just saying to Job, Who do you think that you are? At the start, I think three points are made in verse number one, which set the tone for these speeches. First of all, God speaks. He comes and he speaks. I think the first and most significant thing of this passage is that God speaks. God makes himself known. The theological term for this Such an event in the Old Testament is a theophany from two Greek words, theos, God, uh, and phanein, which means to appear. Epiphany comes from the same root word. It is an appearance of God. But we know, and the Old Testament saints knew, that God was different from this world. He was a reality quite distinct from creation, that God was infinite. So how can the infinite God appear within finite creation? Well, we have these moments in time at specific places in which God would, in a real sense, limit himself by appearing in a particular form and would speak to his people. He does this in different places and in different appearances, if you wish. But one thing we find in common with theophanies is that the presence of God is almost overwhelming to his audience. That is to say, if God did not tone it down a lot, his audience would be consumed. If you look at the theophanies recorded in the Old Testament, when God appears to people in the Old Testament, they are filled with dread and wonder. Sometimes they are unable to speak. They bow, and you put bow in quotation marks. Most of them are on the ground as though they are dead. They are almost completely overwhelmed by God's presence. His presence and his majesty is too much for them. And I mention this because something I find very disturbing in the church today is sort of a lack of awe at the idea of God coming and meeting with his people and speaking to his people. I think somehow we, we, we imagine... Or there's this assumption that God owes it to us and that he is he is supposed to speak to us. That's that's what he does. And what's what's the big deal? God's been speaking for centuries. So why wouldn't he speak now? Uh, I think it sort of mirrors our lack of respect, a lack of reverence oftentimes when we go into God's presence in, in prayer as though. 
God's not doing anything else as though he's, he exists only for me. Like a, a child that keeps interrupting a parent as the parent is trying to carry on a conversation. We just sort of expect that this is what God should do, is he should listen to us. And, and he does, because God is infinite. But I think reverence is certainly in order. I would suggest to you that if God, in fact, did appear to you and he spoke to you, no one would have to say to you, um, you need to be reverent in the presence of God. You need to show respect. The very presence of God is overwhelming. The Apostle John in the book of Revelation, someone who was, I think, very close to Jesus, at least as recorded in the Gospel of John, when Jesus appears to him, we read he falls on the ground as though dead. The presence of God is an awesome thing. The second thing that we see in this first verse is that God speaks out of the store. Other places in the Old Testament, we find that when God appears, he does so by means of the awesome display of the power of creation. For example, at Sinai, we read that on the third on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain at Sinai and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood in front of the mountain. In this particular context, God speaks out of a storm. Some translations have whirlwind, um, the mighty power of creation. But what we find when God does use these aspects of creation, uh, thunder, dark clouds, earthquakes, fires, whatever it may be, I think his purpose or the reason that those things are there is not only to reveal God's presence, but also to conceal it to a certain degree. That is, if God's divine glory were exposed to us directly, we'd be be burned up, we'd be consumed. We, We sang in the hymn today that it is only the light that hideth thee. I mean, it is the light we would be blinded otherwise, that the splendor of God is too much for us. And so God appears to Job not as himself, because then Job would be eaten up, he'd be consumed, but he comes and he speaks out of a storm. The third thing that we see, and in the English translations we may not see this, but he uses the name Jehovah or Yahweh. If you look at your Bible, it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. In the Old Testament, whenever you see Lord, and it is all in capital letters, Instead of using the name of God as God revealed it to Moses, I am who I am, Jehovah or Yahweh, the Jews would write the Lord. Now, throughout the book of Job, if you remember, God is always referred to as the Almighty. The Hebrew word is Shaddai. It's not been since the first chapter that we've actually had God referred to as Jehovah or Yahweh. I think the friends like the name Shaddai, Almighty, and certainly God is the Lord God Almighty. But by using this name, they are able to sort of make him distant and far away and transcendent and so far away uh, as to really not be involved, I think, in a way that Job anticipates. 
They have taken a God of grace and security and made him a God of detachment and impersonal mighty power. One author says they got used to using God's name, which originally spoke of grace in a way that denied grace. And that's why they sort of gang up on Job in the midst of his great difficulties. But now God, the one who has revealed himself and made covenants with human beings, this God addresses Job personally. He doesn't address the friends. He doesn't address, there's an apparent audience around listening. He speaks to Job. And God takes the offensive. He begins by challenging Job, by asking him a question, and then commanding him. Look, if you would, let's read the first three verses. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? An interesting play on words. Uh, with words without knowledge. Speaking but nothing behind it. I think this is important as we begin this, this section God calls into question Job's insight without minimizing his integrity, his moral integrity. What God is challenging is Job's perception of how God is ruling in the world. God asserts his superiority in this passage without diminishing Job as a human being. Something I fear as human beings we're not very good at. Whenever arguments start to sort of get hot and heavy and, and, and the more panicked or the more fervent, depending on your perspective, we get, then oftentimes we resort to name calling, the old ad hominem type of arguments. We saw it with Job's friends. The last friend of Job to speak, if you remember, it was Bildad, who said, man, and he meant Job, who is but a maggot, only a worm. We don't hear such things from God. God does not question Job's integrity. I think that's one of the fascinating things about this passage. He doesn't question Job and say, you're a wretch. You have no right to speak to me. I don't know why I bothered you. The fact is God does speak to him. To him and not to the others. And he says to Job, you have darkened my counsel, that is, you have misrepresented my plan, my counsel, speaking about things you know nothing about. And so the command is, brace yourself like a man. Other translations have, gird up your loins. I think if we had a, if we put it in a more modern context, tighten your belt, your belt, cinch it up, come on. This is going to be a tough job. Uh, literally, in the, in, in the ancient world, to gird up your loins meant to take the ends of your robe and tuck them into your belt so you could run faster, you could work hard. Apparently the task at hand was going to be difficult and so you needed to do that. Job has no idea how difficult his task is going to be. The framework of the task is this. God says, I'm going to ask questions. You're going to give me answers. Earlier in the book of Job, Job had said the same thing to God. Summon me and I will answer. 
or let me speak and you reply. Okay? Either you speak and I answer, or I'll speak and you answer. And God says, I'll do the talking here. You do the answering. He chooses the position of interrogator. And so he will interrogate Job for these next few chapters. Just a few words about the language. This passage is poetic. Okay? It's not scientific. And living in the modern age, uh, I think people may see this as quaint or, or backward or pre-modern or whatever you want to say. It's not intended to be literal per se. It is intended to be poetic to reveal the majesty of God's creation, his work in creation, and how he sustains it. And the point is this. God's wisdom and God's power versus Job's wisdom and Job's power. And when it's all said and done, Job's like, it's no contest. I had no business talking at all. There is something important here underlying, and I've hinted at it, and I want to just deal with it more specifically. Think for a moment as God prepares to speak. What did God think of Job? We saw in chapter 1 that on two different occasions, God said to Satan, the accuser, the one who came to accuse him, God said, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. If you remember, uh, to refer to Job as his servant in the Old Testament, that's an amazing thing. For us, servant is you know, sort of the, that's a lower position. God did not refer to too many people as his servant. To call Job his servant, he thought very highly of Job. When we get to the end of God's speeches, he will say to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have spoken of me what is not right, or you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. Of all the participants to whom does God speak, it is to Job. And therefore, I would suggest to you that these chapters should not be viewed as an attack on Job. I think it's very easy to see it in that light. Because of the sarcasm, I think because of the harshness at different points. This is not an attack on Job. This is a teaching session in which God will teach one whom he loves. I think that's the point of the book of Job. Not, why does Job suffer? Okay? Because we still don't know that. Okay? The point is, God loves Job. And so he will speak to Job, and he will seek to train him and to teach him. We'll look just at the first section here today, which God deals with the created order. There are actually two parts of this, the structure of the world and then how that structure is maintained. We'll only get to the first part today, the structure of the world. I would just say, just in passing, that one almost longs for the old days of the Puritans in the 17th century, in which they would preach for two or three hours. Um, I'll not be doing that today. Uh, but if I did have the two or three hours, then we might be able to get through this first uh, speech. But we will do it in increments. The first series of questions run from verses 4 through 15. And here God deals with the initial stages of creation and he uses various images uh, 
because Job is really questioning whether or not God knows what's going on, if God has a clue as to what's going on in the, in the world. So now God says, okay, let me ask you, do you have a clue? Follow along if you would as I read. Where were you when I laid the, the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched the measuring line across it? On what were its footings set or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may, go, may come and no farther? Here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. God questions Job. Do you really understand do you have enough knowledge that you can question me to know whether or not what I'm doing is right? He uses three different figures here, three different images, that of the master builder, that of the midwife, and that of the general. The master builder is in verses 4 through 7, in which God talks about the creation of the world. You know, and one could argue that, that God's not playing fair. You know, to play the eternity card right at the beginning... It's like, okay, you're older than me. That, that doesn't quite seem fair. I remember when I was younger, I have three siblings. There were four of us. And in, inevitably, whenever there would be a conflict, there would be, it'd be two against two. And so to try to resolve it, my, my great solution was always, let's add up ages. And they'd always say, well, that's not fair, Damon, because you're older than the rest of us. Whoever voted with me, we would always win. And, and for God to say, were you there at the beginning that seems very unfair on God's part. But Job is the one who started it. Job started this whole business because he claims to have wisdom. And in the wisdom books, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 8, we are told that when God created the world, he had one companion with him. And this language is not literal, it is poetic. But God, when he created the world, had one companion. Wisdom. And the question to you, Job, is, was that you? Are you so wise as to be capital W wisdom that you were there with me when I created the world? The obvious answer is no. God says, tell me if you understand. Surely you know. Do you understand basic, basic things about how the world was made? No, he doesn't. So how can he expect to argue with God. He wasn't there. No human being was present. But others were when God created the world. And the morning stars and the angels, some translations have, the sons of God sang for joy. There was a chorus there. They were there. Job, were you there? No, he wasn't. And then the second image is that of a midwife. And this is very interesting of God bringing forth the seas. The, the image is that of a pregnancy and a birth, and then of sort of wrapping up the child in clothes. That the sea is seen as being in a womb, and then God allows it to come forth, and then he wraps it up 
in clouds and in darkness. Uh, we're not, we don't live in the ancient world, but it is important to know the context to understand that what to understand what God is not saying. In ancient religions, it was believed that the deity was male and creation was female. And so it required the male to impregnate the female and then to bring forth what we call creation. That's not what's happening here. That is not what is happening here. God is the creator. He is the one who brought these things forth. In other ancient religions, it was believed that the deity had to subdue, had to conquer the chaos of creation. This is not the case with God either. He is the one who set the boundaries and said to the sea, come on out, let me wrap you up as a baby, and this is how far you can go and no farther. We will see in the weeks to come that God not only creates, but he sustains his creation. The third image is that of a general which he commands the light to shine. Have you ever given orders to the morning? On the first day of creation, God said, let there be light. And in a very real sense, every dawn is a reminder, if not a reenactment of the first day in which God speaks the world into existence. The hymn that we sing, uh, I sing the mighty power of God. The moon shines full at his command. The sun rises at God's command. It is not as we tend to think as modern people. Oh, yes, we know we have we understand all these impersonal mechanical laws, the laws of nature. That's how things, you know, the earth is revolving. Uh, it's rotating all these different things. That's how it works. No, God is the one who calls these things out. Has Job ever done this? Has Job ever said to the sun, come on, sun, come on up? No. No, he hasn't. I don't know if you've seen the commercial for some particular car. I forget which one it is in which a person is able to make the sun come up and down by the speed of the car or the children with orange juice as they suck on the straw and the orange juice, the sun goes down. Uh, no, but, you know, God does this, not Job, not us. You should have noticed that two times in this particular passage, the wicked are mentioned. Which, for us, seems really out of place, because we're talking about nature. We're not talking about people. We're talking about God's creation. Why mention the wicked here at all? Well, the context is that of light, of day, versus darkness and night. The coming of the morning, the coming of dawn, ends the darkness in which the wicked do their deeds of evil. You may remember from chapter 24, uh, Eliphaz mentions, let me just read it to you. There are those who rebel against the light, who do not know its ways or stay in its paths. When the daylight is gone, the murderer rises up and kills the poor and needy. In the night, he steals forth like a thief. The eye of the adulterer watches for dusk. He thinks no eye will see me and he keeps his face concealed. In the dark, men break into houses. But by day they shut themselves in. They want nothing to do with the light. For all of them, deep darkness is their morning. They make friends with the terrors of darkness. And God is saying, listen, when dawn comes, it is as though someone takes a tablecloth and shakes off the crumbs. That the coming of the sun of dawn 
not only sort of reshapes the earth, those of you who are morning people who see the sun come up, it's just amazing how the contours of the earth seem to change with the shadows as the sun goes up. But more than that, the place to hide is taken away. The symbolic upraised arm of the wicked is broken by the coming of the sun. This deals with the stuff in a sense that we know about. In verses 16 through 24, we have the things we can't see or that are beyond us in a real sense. Look, if you would, I'll read verses 16 through 24. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. What is the way to the abode of light and where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? For what is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Here we read about the depths of the sea, the place where light is, the skies where hail and, and snow are reserved. And for me, at least, as I prepared for this passage, this is the part of God's speech that begins to worry me. Because I think in the scientific modern age, much of the things that God begins to talk about now we have discovered that Job and the ancient world and the pre-modern world, they didn't know about these things. But now, if God, in fact, were to come and ask these questions, we would know some of the answers to them. So, for example, have you journeyed to the springs of the sea? We now know because we're able to go to the bottom of the ocean in the submersible devices that if you get down to the bottom of the ocean, you find fresh water springs. So now we know that. God says to Job, tell me if you understand, tell me if you know all this, surely you know all this. I think in our day that if God were to come and to say these same things, I think humanity might be tempted to respond. See, the purpose of these questions is not for Job to give an answer, but for Job to think. But in our age, in our culture, I think we're much more into talking than we are thinking. We're much more into giving answers than we are thinking about the questions. So the depths of the sea, sure, we've, we've, we have submersible. Okay, we can't go down to the very, very deepest parts, but we've, we've gone down fairly deep. Um, what about the expanses of the earth? We have uh, GPS. Uh, the satellites, they can tell you where you are any place on the face of the planet. Uh, the light, we now know the speed of light. And it's interesting in some translations, uh, do you know the, the way of light? That is a sense, and some people read into it, a sense that light is moving. That it moves 186,000 per second, you know, all that. That when we come to this latter section of this, 
okay, we weren't there at creation and, and all that type of stuff, but okay, now you're in our ballpark. Now, now, you're, now you're dealing with stuff that we can understand. Okay, the gates of death, the gates of the shadow of death, we might have a little, bit, a little bit of problem with that, but that's poetic, so it shouldn't be taken literally, so we're okay. No, a thousand times no. If God spoke to you from the storm, you would, if you could speak, answer somewhat along the lines that Job does. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. But for right now, God's piling on, basically. He's asking Job question after question. Do you know, do you know, do you know? And God willing, when we get to the end of this, I think we'll have a better sense of what God is doing. He's not answering Job's questions. God never does answer Job's question. He never explains to Job why these things happen. By the way, he hasn't explained it to us either. So what's he doing talking about all these things about creation? I think he wants us to know he's in charge and we're not. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, forgive us for our lack of reverence, our presumption to sometimes even storm into your presence. You have toned down things so that we would not be consumed by your presence. We are grateful for that, and yet perhaps that has caused us to take it for granted. We thank you that you have spoken, that you do reveal yourself, and above all, that you love your servant, Job. You don't try to trash him, disrespect him, humiliate him, but rather to teach him. And may we, not only today, but in the weeks to come, learn the lessons that you are seeking to try to teach Job. We thank you for this opportunity to come and worship together. We ask that your grace and your spirit would go with us as we leave this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Would you stand, please, as we sing the doxology together? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face toward you and give you peace. Amen.